Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disruptor Studio, where we hear from leaders that inspire innovation, transformation, and greatness. I'm Alex Gonzalez, and I'm just so excited today to welcome Frank Patterson, who is the CEO of what is now called Trilla Studios and what was formerly known as Pinewood Atlanta Studios, which is the place where some of the biggest movie companies in the world come to film some of the biggest movies in the world. And as Frank continues his journey of transforming that place to be a true creative center, you're going to have filmmakers of all types, of all sizes come to make magical stories. Frank himself is much more than even a movie executive in his own right. He's a creative He's an educator, he's a technologist, and I love talking to Frank, whether it's at when we're hanging out at South by Southwest or in our hometown of Atlanta. Our conversations just go in all kinds of directions, but his insights into the future of media and also what a creator means is always fascinating. So that's why I'm thrilled to have Frank here today to talk about so much about how he thinks about creators and how he thinks about how the media industry is going to go, but especially to learn about him and what inspires him and what keeps him creative as well and how he helps creators and entrepreneurs accomplish their own full potential. So here it is, The Disruptor Studio with Frank Patterson. Mr. Frank Patterson, how are you doing, sir? Great, Alex. Good to see you. Great to good, hear you. Great to hear you here. Well, thank you for coming on the Disruptor Studio. It's a little intimidating having this, you know, the guy who who made sure that, you know, Wakanda and the Avengers and all that had a, uh, had a home here in Georgia, that now I'm interviewing here in our little humble studio. But it's good to have you here. Um, and look, you know, I, I, the other thing that I'm actually nervous about, but it's in a good way, one of one of my one of my great memories of our time together is in our busy lives we don't get a chance to talk to each other every day but when we do it's incredible conversation. I, I remember Frank being at South by Southwest at what was a I think a Choose ATL house or something and we just bumped into each other and next thing you know we're sitting in this beautiful sun in Austin Texas speaking for an, for for like an hour of who knows what but it didn't matter that that's a great thing about South by right and exactly. those kinds of conferences you run into people and you just connect uh, especially around innovation that's what's fun well innovation and creativity and and there's so much that I know we could go on and on and I have a feeling this might be part of a, its own podcast series that we'll set up but, but let me ask you this um, so obviously uh, uh, Frank uh, you, you know for those who known you you're CEO of have been P, CEO of Pinewood Atlanta Studios but now of Trill of Studios which we'll get a little bit into that transition but let me ask you this kind of getting into what I think is on everybody's mind they are running out of things to watch on Netflix and D- Disney Plus <laughs> Right. And Apple, how talk about COVID before we kind of get into your story here. Talk about COVID and the impact just on the business and what you're seeing here as we sit here in October. Yeah, well, just as a little bit of backdrop, uh, just before COVID hit, we were in this really uh, interesting situation in the industry in that uh, with um, this change in the business model in the movie business where consumers began. Uh, consuming from these platforms like Netflix and uh, eventually Disney Plus and um, this, these direct-to-consumer platforms uh, where we could watch what we want to watch, when we want to watch, and whatever device we want to watch it, right? right. We, um, uh, what, what was happening was there's so much opportunity around the creation of content that Wall Street was pouring more money into the pipeline 
than we in the film industry have the capacity huh. to produce. So we didn't have the talent or the facilities or the, just the pure supply chain being challenged by all the demand. And so we were really fighting to keep up, right? And not really keeping up. And as you know, when Disney announced its platform uh, and it took its license rights back uh, from its IP from, from Netflix and began producing its own content, this was all happening just before COVID hit. Right, right. We didn't have enough content then. And then what do we do? We all sit in our houses for three months and just start consuming content because that's all we can do. Right. And it just exhausts the pipeline. So here we are, and, and part of the panic, and you know, there's a lot of reasons. I, I feel very fortunate, of course, uh, to have a job and to, to be in an industry right. uh, that I, I just dreamed of when I was a kid. And I, I really feel for all those uh, people who, who uh, many uh, friends and family have been hurt by this. Um, but the, from a business point of view, I was just really nervous about how quickly can we get back to work because we have stopped the, the manufacturing process with a pipeline that needs content. Yeah. And so um, I think it was see, March 11th, that following Monday, we kind of just circled uh, here at the studios and said, okay, we're going to have to pivot from supporting all these projects that we do and this pipeline to figuring out um, how can we build the safest studio in the world? And what does safe mean? Mm. Right. Because that, that's the question. Right. And I tell you, Alex, I, Never did I plan on becoming uh, an expert on microbial <laughs> reduction solutions, you know, right. or on, on how many cycles should a testing protocol include to get a useful positive versus a not useful positive test outcome. I mean, all this stuff that we're all learning, right? right. So, uh, but for us, uh, we knew that we had the benefit of having a secured studio environment, one of the right. most secure studios in the world. That was our... our our asset that we had coming into this. And so the problem that we needed to solve was how could we create a, uh, a really safe working environment to get this production back to work. And it took us about 14, 15 weeks. And as you know how this goes, we're all yeah. on these task forces, right? So I'm on the task force for this and that. And we have guilds and unions and associations in the industry. So it was a lot of task force collaboration to get discussion up to try to figure out how we could get um, productions uh, shooting again uh, here um, at Trillith. And it turned out, uh, I'm told, and I don't know, I'm I haven't had a moment to do the research, I'm told we have the first uh, major studio feature up and running uh, wow. in the United States. Um, and of course, that's a double-edged sword because good news is we're back up and shooting. Uh, bad news is we're back up and shooting and we don't know how to do this. You know, we're <laughs> right. all learning something new. And so um, we we believe we've set uh, the very best uh, uh, we've set we've set new standards for health and safety, and everyone's back to not everyone we are ramping back up to work now. Right. Uh, and I'm happy to say we're 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 putting pictures frames in the camera and getting ready to actually start delivering content again. Well, that'll be good, and I know my my uh, young adult and teenage boys will be very happy as <laughs> as, my, as mom and I uh, try to you know tell them how the '90s were the best movie era ever. <laughs> so, 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 so for someone who doesn't um, know, um, you know what was Pinewood um, Atlanta and now is Trill Studios. Talk a little bit, maybe what it has been, and and I, I think. It's to me, it's just amazing that 
in Fayetteville, Georgia, in this very nondescript road, some of the most amazing movie magic in the world has been mm-hmm. taking place from, from the, of course, a Marvel franchise and so much more. But talk a little bit about what Pinewood has been and, and, and perhaps what Trillif is going to be. Well, I think those in the movie business know Pinewood as a B2B brand, right? right. It's, it's, it's a facilities business with an 85-year history of providing uh, premium facilities um, uh, to some of the biggest filmmakers in the history of the industry. I mean, right. literally from the beginning, Alfred Hitchcock and uh, obviously all the stuff we've been doing uh, with Marvel and these great storytellers. But, um, you know, at, in a few years ago, in looking at where the industry was going with this sort of seismic shift in the business model and the demand for content and really the demand for technology solutions to help scale the production and the delivery of this content, we realized that in order to build value and really um, uh, uh, contribute to the industry in the best way possible, that we needed to expand from a facilities business, so that's still a core business for us, and start making some strategic bets into some real growth areas, content and technology. And so we went kind of from a one-pillar company right. to three pillars. And that's where the name Trilith, by the way, came from, Trilith, three arms. Yeah. Uh, and we were actually inspired. I didn't know what that word meant until uh, we, 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 we were looking at Stonehenge one day just uh, as a source of inspiration, looking for different ways of, of how do we carry our history that we're proud of uh, as, a, as a British-named company. Right. Um, into this three-pronged business. And we realized that purpose-built facilities, great storytelling and technology is what what Stonehenge is. It's this Mm purpose-built place with uh, the best technology of its time and rich with all these stories. And it happened to be right down the road from the original Pinewood, the the, the mothership. So we thought, well, that's really interesting. We're not going to call ourselves Stonehenge. But come to find out, those three pillars, you know, the cross member and the two stone, uh, that's called a trillith. And it really is a, a gateway kind of object that is seen around the world. And we thought, well, this is interesting because that is our, a perfect metaphor for our business and our growth. And it calls upon our history. Uh, and, and we have created what Trillith is, by contrast, uh, by adding those two pillars of business, story and content. What we're really doing here is creating, um, I think, what Dr. Michael Porter from Harvard's research uh, institute on um, uh, com- uh, strategy and competitiveness would call uh, a micro cluster in the entertainment space, right? A, a, a business ecosystem of companies and creatives and innovators who can co-locate and benefit by the co-location of all these resources and plus up their game, whether it be, you know, uh, producing these, these big uh, uh, tentpole movies that uh, the Pinewood name is so familiar with right. uh, to by the way, also being a home for the young, uh, soon-to-be great storytellers, the young innovators for technology, and uh, benefit from the kind of uh, a reputation and rich resources that the Atlanta marketplace already has in the technology space, right? Right. And uh, contribute to that larger ecosystem in a way that makes us a, um, a global center for creativity. And that's what Trillith is, this place. And Trellis Studios, of course, is where um, the stages and all the workshops and all that are. Well, and okay. I think it's it's interesting too because you're talking about now innovating in terms of what the space already is. Just when Trellis would, when it was Pinewood, 
uh, when it first started, um, that in itself was an innovation to, you know, develop this space and, and, and have major movie studios or movies being built in Atlanta. So talk a little bit about that. How did Pinewood even come, what, what was Pinewood Atlanta, Atlanta now, how did that even come about? I mean, the idea of, you know, south of the, well south of the airport in Atlanta to, to have a space to, to, to make movie magic. Yeah, well, it, it came around, uh, you know, originally the idea was uh, Dan Cathy, who's our chairman and yeah. a major investor and uh, just, a, a you know, a major citizen in the state uh, and someone who really thinks about how his hometown and how his state, uh, you know, takes care of its people through jobs and innovation and all that. Uh, he and acted, of course, and, and of course, Chick-fil-A, you know, and, and, and by the way, the CEO yeah, of Chick-fil-A. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, but uh, he... Um, he kind of accidentally got in the movie business um, <laughs> where uh, um, he had a couple of old warehouses that some TV shows were shooting in. Yeah. And he became fascinated with how those warehouses were being used. And he asked uh, one of our own great thought leaders in this marketplace, Steve Weisnecker, you know, how does this industry work? And Steve introduced him to the folks at Pinewood. And at the time, uh, the Pinewood team was looking to expand into the U.S., um, was uh, a quite uh, found the tax incentives and the new policy here in the state of Georgia to be attractive. And the timing was perfect. Dan wanted to uh, build a center for creativity, and Pinewood wanted to have a location in the States, and in particular in the Atlanta marketplace. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's really nice that you land at the Atlanta airport and 20 minutes later, you're on the best stages in the world. Oh, yeah. So it's helpful to have that airport that has the most traveled airport in the world. That was part of the value proposition. Um, but the combination of um, the bold vision uh, that Dan had for what this could be with the timing of the industry's growth and Pinewood's uh, interest in the U.S. market kind of led to this magic moment. And so we have... A kind of a page one rewrite for what stages in a studio should look like because we got to build this four mm -hmm. years ago, five years ago. That's right. And that was really nice. And Pinewood's long history of, of supporting these big tentpole projects, which is a huge manufacturing feat. Which in, it's in England, if I recall, Star Wars is part of their... Yeah, Star Wars and yeah, the yeah, big... So. Yeah. And, you know, what's great about it, if you've ever visited Pinewood in London, it's such, a, you know, the filmmaker in me just... I get chills because you're walking <laughs> down. There's the 007 stage. There's the, oh, wow. you know, it's all this movie history. But it was built over time and in different segments. So it wasn't designed um, perfectly, you know, for the way movies are manufactured today. And what we were able to do, you know, five years ago is say, how are these tentpole movies manufactured today? And Pinewood was able to design this perfect studio facility you know, with a million square feet under roof, uh, 18 sound stages um, that uh, are, are located and co-located with all the kinds of resources, the costume shops, the workshops, so that these uh, big manufacturing projects, these tentpole movies can be manufactured as, efficient, as efficiently as possible, but importantly, with the kind of creative tools for the creators to really feel like anything's possible. Right. Yeah. And it's fine. going back to South by Southwest, I remember, I guess it was the one before that where I, I forgot. It was actually the first time you and I met was there's a dinner being organized from, from some business leaders in Atlanta and, and coming in. I remember being at South by, which, as you mentioned, is this 
Right. Just amazing, which of course we're starting to see that here in Atlanta with all these uh, uh, excuses to bring techs and creatives together as well too, which is fantastic. But um, but I remember uh, being at this dinner and it's like, well, Dan Cathy is going to you know going to be joining us. I'm like, and of course, why is Dan? Well, yes. what's Dan doing? Here? What's he doing here? And then you know that he brings he brings you in and and uh, and of course uh, one of your colleagues is developing what Pinewood Forest, which is a whole neighborhood, you know, or whole right. residential project. And then what what impressed me there was also just his perspective around. Um, him trying to become a better innovator and entrepreneur himself, which just blew my mind. I'm like, I'm well, like, oh, I gotta tell you, I couldn't believe it. So the first time I met Dan, uh, and this speaks to your point, I, I, he was saying things to me that I thought to myself, I'm in this industry, I'm, I'm an academic as well. And yeah. I researched this stuff. And how can this guy know this? How can he be right about, at least in my opinion, of where the future of this industry is going when he's in the chicken business? And right. so <laughs> I had just, um, I, I, my prior company, I, I formed a company that builds digital humans. And, uh, um, and my studio was in San Francisco. And I had just finished speaking at this innovation summit in Zurich. Uh, and talking about all the changes that were going on in, in in the industry. And then one day, a couple of weeks later, in walks Dan, this guy, and I didn't know Dan and his team, and he starts talking about where our industry's going. And I thought, wow. And he said, you know, everything you were talking about the industry and where it's going, I'd love to sort of think about how we can, you know, what can this mean for us in Atlanta at, at these studios that I've invested so much into? And um, the idea of creating a cluster, an industry cluster, 20 minutes from the most traveled airport in the world, which MIT and Harvard and all these different research groups have demonstrated over and over again, works when you have all these elements together. Um, somehow Dan knew all this and had a good instinct for it. And so right. for me, this guy casts this huge vision that I know he can't know the details of why it would work. Right. But he was dead on. And for me, it was exciting because he believed uh, that we could pull it off. And that's what we've been doing. I know until we talked and you were worried, I think, initially that this was just going to be about managing boxes and warehouses to, right. to host movies. But but it sounds like the vision Dan had, which was bigger than that, to be a disruptor and innovator in this space is what kind of drew well, you to the gig. Yeah. And unfortunately, there was a quote in Hollywood Reporter I kind of regretted right when I came on because, you know, I didn't I was not interested in managing boxes. Right. You know? uh, I, I, I love starting technology companies, creating content. Uh, and when I first uh, met Dan in the group, uh, I, it was interesting to know that he was in that business. And I thought he was looking for someone to kind of run that and have a lot of friends in the in the studio facilities business. And I thought I can hook you up. I know who to call, but I'm not that guy. Yeah. But when, you know. He said, is there any way you can move your digital human company from San Francisco to Atlanta? Which the answer is no. I, you know, the, the, that was that, that talent. <laughs> you know, uh, I realized, wait a minute. He's thinking about the co-location of technology and content. And he's really uh, recognizes the value of clustering all these industries. And so uh, I sort of put together kind of a proposal for, I thought, how we could grow this thing. And um, we've been off and running ever since. Next thing you know, you're hosting Robert Downey Jr. and building <laughs> creative. And, and then what was that South by you had you and Dan were talking about 
do I need to put tattoo parlors? In this? I mean, it was just interesting <laughs> how holistic you guys were thinking about this whole project. Well, and that's, that's it. I think part of the challenge is um, the, the how do you create a place? And now this is, by the way, you know, there are, place building is a very interesting field, whether oh, it's yeah. new, new urbanism in a town or it's building clusters, uh, you know, in industries. But why people gather to engage in activities is is a whole science in and of itself. And it's, I've been a student of of that kind of thinking. You know, I think there's an old joke that every filmmaker wants to be an architect, and every you know, and every believes they could design anything. And yeah. you know, for me, I've been a student of architecture and and uh, of town building and place making. And uh, so the idea that you know, how does a Burbank form? You know, when right. the developers of uh, back in mid early mid 20th century acquired this place called Laurelwood so they could build some stages and then build uh, adjacent to some living to homes to be what would become Studio City. You know, they didn't have all the benefits of hindsight that we have right now to create a mill town essentially in the movie business. So in many ways, what we're doing is not new. It's just a contemporary version of it with a lot more uh, dynamics. Now, um, going back to uh, when you when you were younger, uh, you know, pre college, <laughs> were you were, did? Because as I think about you, if I look at your background here, it's, it's really this amazing blend of creative tech education, and of course, lately, vi, you know, virology and medicine. <laughs> medicine yeah, exactly. As, right. as LCS <laughs> have to learn how to manage through this the current environment, but. Um, what what did you think you wanted to do when you were young? I, I heard a rumor maybe you wanted to play football at Baylor, but you, you know. oh oh that was a, <laughs> no that was a momentary thought because I wasn't I played football basically because my dad was a football player and he wanted me to be a football player. But uh, yeah. um, and the year uh, I was considering such a crazy thought, Mike Singletary was the captain of the team for defense for Baylor, and there I was a go. line and I was a linebacker, so that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> Uh, but my real love was music. Um, okay. uh, you know, I, I, I um, come from a family of musicians and uh, saw myself as uh, being a musician. And uh, my mother says to this day, she thinks I'm a musician first and a filmmaker second. And I still play and I love it. And uh, it's, it's, it keeps me alive. Um, but um, uh, so I, you know, I was from the Hill Country in Texas and uh, really went to Baylor because a lot of my family had. Right. Uh, but it was a disaster. I just really wasn't ready for school. I, I there's this place called Roxy Grove at Baylor where they have all these grand pianos and all it's a music school. Right. 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 And I just spent all my time down there and I failed out uh, first semester, I think, or second semester. I failed out twice um, and just had this horrible career as a student uh, and then joined a band. Uh, we went on tour. Uh, I played for about 12 months. Uh, um, woke up in a dumpster one morning <laughs> after a, a bad gig uh, and just kind of, but as I woke up, I, I, I sat there for a second and just thought about reflecting on my life as the sun was coming over the dumpster lid and, <laughs> and just thought, you know what, this is not good. I don't like this life. And there was a guy named Paul Matthews, Colonel Paul Matthews at Baylor, who was, uh, he had a new division had just popped up at a lot of universities at that time, come to find out now that I'm an academic, um, that was focused on recidivism. Hmm. And he sat me down and said, what is it you love? And I said, music. I love music. He said, I'm going to give you 
three nights a week in Roxy Grove and you're going to give me the rest of your time and we're going to focus on. And that is where I found, you know, that not only I, I happened to have gotten a little writing scholarship out of high school because I, I was a natural writer. Right. Um, and um, he said, you have skills here. So that's when I discovered through my best friend in college, uh, this program that was focusing on uh, film and media and storytelling at Baylor that was nascent at the time, but was quite remarkable and has become a great program today under uh, Dr. Corpy's leadership. And, and basically, um, it allowed me to apply music and writing to storytelling at Baylor. And once that clicked, you know, uh, now as a former dean of students, I'm always looking for that moment where it clicks. And I look for that because it happened for me right. that I clicked. And when it clicked, all of a sudden I was on the dean's list. So I was on the dean's list to get kicked mm. out. And I was on the dean's list to you know, because it worked. And right. uh, I felt very fortunate to sort of discover the calling at that moment. It's almost like you found your purpose and your passion at, yeah. that, at that moment. That's right. That's and, right. And so, and by the way, uh, uh, just ha having had a son just graduate from there, uh, that their, their arts uh, uh, school oh, Baylor? program. Yeah, yeah. And so, oh, uh, great. Now he's in the political science side, but I remember passing by their living learning community that's focused on art, yeah. on, on the arts and all that. So they've done an incredible job. Great there. theater program, great digital yeah. media, just yeah, really great programs. So, um, so then, so then, to talk about your journey, then uh, after Baylor, it sounds like you found your passion and your purpose, and and um, and were you were you becoming more of a filmmaker first or academic first? How, how kind of were you? Oh, definitely about filmmaker. So. This was back in 1985, 84, 85. And I don't know if you remember, there was these little black boxes that we called VHS tapes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it was really novel at the time. We might have a box uh, of it somewhere with it. So, you yeah. know, that I won't throw away. My drive my wife, drives but my wife crazy. It, it is hard for uh, youngsters today to, to recognize that it was huge to be able to bring a movie home. Yeah. Like to literally go bring a movie home was a big deal. And that was about the time I had learned how to make content. And there was an incredible demand for video content. And uh, I started out, I had shot some commercials and I realized, wait a minute, a 60 second commercial. All I got to do is do 120 of those and I got a movie or 100 of those <laughs> and I got a movie. And so there was so much demand for this content. I raised a little bit of money, made this uh, little horror film that my mom called a horrible little film. And it was, uh, and it sold, and it sold, you know, really? uh, wow. I forgot what that is, about 100,000 units at seventy nine ninety nine a piece. Because remember back in the day, wow. the wholesalers would buy the VHS tapes and you would rent them for two bucks, right? Right. And I, and I realized, oh, wow, I stumbled into this business. I just made money and the movie was not good. I mean, let me tell you, because there was so much demand for product at the time that it was, a, it was a little horror genre film. And I made a few more of those. And really, that was my film school. They were awful films. But it was an opportunity for me to learn, wow, story is this incredibly powerful thing. I was very comfortable with the technology because I grew up in a, a, a recording studio and I knew how to deal, uh, set up equipment, how signal flow work. And I was always interested in technology. Uh, so the filmmaking part wasn't difficult for me. It was the realization that story has this profound influence. Right. Uh, despite how awful my, my original movies were, it was a chance for <laughs> me to uh, make some money during the growth of the VHS era, right? And then when that kind of, as you know, all those technologies sort of peak and fall, and when that technology fell, um, 
I had a lot of experience and had the opportunity to apply that experience in the building of a new film school that became uh, Florida State University's uh, now nationally recognized film school. And I got very fortunate with that. And really that served as a lab for me. It made me realize uh, they made the mistake in asking us filmmakers how you should build a film school. Now they made it as an academic mistake, but it was probably a really smart, somebody was wise about that because my thought at the time was, well, filmmakers don't want to be professors. You know, you got to be able to move people in and out. And so, and by the way, I'm not going to become a professor. I'm going to go make movies. But if you want me to teach these kids and if I can do my research and make technology along the side, and it was really in that spirit that the film school, the College of Motion Picture Arts at Florida State University was born with a bunch of filmmakers who were really just trying to make a film school that they would want to attend. I mean, that's basically what it was coming down to. And so we got real lucky. And the first set of thesis films out of that school, um, uh, Quentin Tarantino saw one of the thesis films, made it into a feature film. Uh, and took the, uh, some scenes from that movie and actually the actress and a character from that movie and put it in his next film, which was Pulp Fiction. And, oh, wow. you know, it was just one of those fortunate timing things where all of a sudden I was now an academic. And really I was in, you know, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothes because I was, I didn't want to be an academic, but I was program building and, and learning a lot about storytelling in that way and how collaboration works. Um, uh, and, and, and also sort of discovering new kinds of technologies that I could apply um, in the filmmaking world. So I've had one foot as kind of an academic focused on research and creativity and the other foot in industry ever since 1990. Yeah, because uh, the, other, the other part is on looking at the tech side as well, too. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and, I, and I'm not sure if this happened concurrent with FSU or, or, or a different point, but you also got really involved with tech and virtual reality and, mm-hmm. and actually played a big role in Michael Jackson virtual reality. Talk a little bit about kind of how you got into that journey, how you even got to that space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what was that all about? I'm just utterly fascinated with technologies that are transformative, right, for the human experience. And um, I, I don't know, I just I think because I grew up uh, around technology, recording music and recording uh, and just wanting to I'm, I'm just, you know, some brains are interested in it and mine right. is interested in it. Uh, it when I in 19 early 90s, I was putting, uh, you know, I, I, I was part of a team and we wrote a simply paper about how we slaved the first little Mac computer to a 16 millimeter print. So we could have digital audio on a 60 millimeter print, just trying to solve problems. And I've always been in that uh, uh, and, and started little companies and just trying to figure out ways of bringing technology uh, to, uh, to make useful outcomes uh, in, in the film industry, mostly. Mostly that's what I've been interested in. Right. Uh, the most recent one was this company called Pulse Evolution, where um, I founded uh, was the founding CEO uh, of this company that where we just focused on building hyper realistic digital humans, uh, and most of the the world knew it as holograms, and that's not yeah. what not what we were doing. Uh, we were actually building uh, these kind of reusable photo real human assets. So the Michael mm-hmm. Jackson that appeared at the Billboard Music Awards was an asset that we spent about five months and three and a half million dollars building, uh, the virtual the virtual Michael Jackson asset. And it was, it appeared at the Billboard Music Awards and 10,000 people watching live and 11 right. million people watching on television. And, you know, for those who pay attention to this geeky stuff, it was really interesting for me that you have um, this 
digital asset, this animated, and by the way, a lot of IA went into, AI went into um, um, being able to animate that object as quickly as we needed to, to have it uh, appear to be, you know, to, to the likeness of, of the late Michael Jackson. But um, how do we have that? on the stage at the same time that we have live performers, at the same time we have a live audience, you know, all the sort of mechanics of that was fun, which was very different than the team that we, br we brought over to Pulse from uh, Digital Domain. And Digital Domain is really the leading organization in the world for digital humans. Right. And they uh, uh, put together um, uh, the, the, uh, with Dr. Dre, the performance that became Tupac that night at right, Coachella. Right. But what was interesting about that is that was, um, if you look at the performance, uh, Tupac, obviously a rapper who had a hand in front of his mic the whole time. I mean, the mic in front of his mouth the whole time. Right. And uh, by the way, had no hair. And so for right. the visual effects animators in the world who might be listening to this, they know I've just eliminated a lot of the difficulty of doing this. <laughs> and then also Tupac was not a dancer per se. I mean, you know, he stood in one place mostly and rocked back and forth while Snoop downstage right, you know, uh, collaborated with him. So it was it was marvelous. And it was really just woke up the world to 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 have Tupac come back and perform but um, I, I think it also benefited that night from a lot of folks uh, late at night who have been drinking and <laughs> engaging in all kinds of activities so they could get surprised. What we did with Michael was actually take it a step further and say, OK, this is going to be on the Billboard Music Awards live television. And it has to simultaneously work for television and 10,000 people who, by the way, are not hammered you know, right. at this award show. And. It's they're, Michael, they're kind of looking for the trick. They're looking, what's looking the for the trick. trick. That's right, right. Exactly. And uh, by the way, Michael, you know, I learned a lot working with his, a lot of his former creators. You know, he didn't dance on stages that were shorter in width than 40 feet. He wanted to use that whole width mm. and he interacted with others on stage. And there was a lot of collaboration. And I thought, oh, my, that's now, by the way. It's scary on one hand. Are we going to be able to pull it off? On the other hand, it's exciting. Like, could we pull this off? Yeah. And and that was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was a, a good business. And uh, through uh, various iterations, it's 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 now become uh, uh, um, uh, an exciting uh, player in in the sports space. But um, uh, this is about the time, by the way, uh, when I met. Uh, the Pinewood group, Dan and the whole Pinewood team. Okay. And we were really talking about how can we bring content and technology together for this cluster. Uh, and I had sort of run the, the, the digital human thing had run its course uh, and was about to go into its next iteration. I was really focused at the time on building an AI company uh, uh, because a lot of AI research had been uh, already underway for, um, you know, fintech uh, uh, companies uh, in the fintech space, uh, in the social media, in autonomous cars. There was a lot of AI work that was really interesting, but not uh, enough focused on, um, uh, you know, um, general artificial intelligence, that yeah. the, kind, the kind that was needed to sort of make these photo real humans move from kind of crossing the uncanny valley to moving toward passing the Turing test, right? So right. how do you how do you make that work? Uh, and so, but it was about this time that um, I connected with uh, the Pinewood Group 
and realized this could be a platform where I could kind of leave out, live out all my technology and content fantasies. <laughs> what? Well, you, you bring up something kind of interesting too with this this collision of creative and tech, which then is a big part of what you drive and you've done. And, and, and I think even putting your educator hat on in terms of as you raise this next generation of filmmakers or creators, you know, how what, what's that line of creating, of embracing tech? And I, I keep coming back to someone like John Favreau, who of course has been right. at your facility many, many times. And most people know him as happy on, you know, right. of course, the, the Avengers. Uh, Shows, but I think of him as this amazing filmmaker and leading course, innovator. Yeah, leading, and that's the thing that got me. It's like I remember hearing an interview with him uh, talking about the Mandalorian and the amount of tech, and he was mm-hmm. just if. You did not know it was John Favreau. You would have thought it was a tech leader in the valley talking about just right. the latest tech. So when when you think about the next generation of filmmakers, is that an essential part of it, or is this just a piece? Well, of it? I would argue that. What Favreau is, and by the way, he's passionate about telling stories yeah. and, and creating experiences that he has in his brain that he just wants to get out there. And so he's a driver of this tech because he has this outcome. Right. And like when you think about the sort of magic mix, and I think about this a lot with students, but I, I share this and, and, it, and sometimes it kind of, it takes a while before it sinks in. But if intelligence is the ability to sort of apprehend and perceive what is, and imagination is the ability to apprehend and perceive what could be, mm-hmm. right? Then creativity is this ability to use both of those toward a useful outcome. And if you just reverse engineer that, Favreau is interested in that outcome. Right. That's what he wants. And so the sort of imagination combined with literally recognizing what's right in front of you, the intelligence to recognize the tools that are right in front of you, the imagination to figure out where it could go toward the outcome is what Favreau does great. And by the way, so did uh, Cameron. So, so this is this obviously transcends all industries and this yeah. is about the human spirit this is what we're doing right right imagining what's possible seeing it but the part that i think our youngsters you know i'm sorry to sound like a teacher right now but <laughs> one of the you <laughs> know one of the things i always focus on with young people is that part of useful outcome because creativity is often categorized as just imagining all these different combinations of things no that's not creativity right Right. It's being able to the ability to use both your intelligence and your imagination toward a useful outcome. And that test of useful is where the, uh, you know, the, the rubber meets the road. And Favreau's, uh, you know, one of the greats right now. Yeah. And, and I love that because I think that analog, that, that element of getting to, to outcomes is why I think filmmaking is such a great analog for just innovating in any business, any industry, because right. it, it is, you could over-index on technology, you could over-index on, on, on the story, right. but it's, the, it's getting that right curation of it. Well, you speaking of kind of that being a teacher, but that generational element, um, what, what are you seeing? You know, we have obviously right now, a lot of the kind of tentpole leaders are kind of Gen X, you know, are Gen Xers now, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, when you start thinking about JJ Abrams and all that, but, 
but what, as you start thinking about your millennial filmmakers and Gen Zs, are you seeing an evolution in what that is, or is storytelling still storytelling? Just what are you seeing kind of transcend as new generations of filmmakers come uh, on? Well, um, it's a great question, Alex, and I'll take two lines of thought to respond to it. One is uh, the human brain. Uh, needs story to survive, just like mm. the human needs oxygen to survive. The, our lungs need oxygen to survive. The human brain needs story. Um, we think in metaphors before we can speak words. We make sense through metaphors. and Those metaphors create meaning for us. We will always have the need to gather around the fire metaphorically or the cinema literally or whatever it is and construct these metaphors and challenge each other's understanding of what we're doing through those metaphors. That's not going anywhere. You know, Aristotle long time ago demonstrated, and that's not going anywhere. And that's very different, by the way, than, and it's a different part of the brain, uh, than when you engage in games, right? Mm -hmm. the, the gamification of uh, the gamified experience. And so we've been playing games for millennia as well. And that's a different kind of activity. But what's interesting, what's happened is we're at a time in an age where a lot of these young filmmakers grew up in a gaming world. Right. Uh, and fortunately, they didn't listen to the academics and others who said, <laughs> you know, uh, gaming's go you know, story's gonna become gamified and games are gonna become meta-narratives. Obviously, they're borrowing from one another. That's what it is. But these are different parts of the brain, and they serve different purposes for us as, as humans, right? Um, but what, so the second part, the sort of second line of thought here, what's been interesting is these young people who are now the filmmakers whose work you see on the screen, right. most of them grew up in an environment where they were walking around in these worlds and playing in these virtual worlds. And all of a sudden, and they had this fascination with filmmaking, and they're confused by the idea, why do I have to have the camera work around my object? You know, why do I have to keep moving the camera around a particular object? Why can't I be in a world where the world moves around the camera? Mm, because that's yeah. what they're used to seeing. And so it's very frustrating. I was talking to a filmmaker, Wes Ball, who... Uh, 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 best known for the, um, I'm going up on the franchise. Oh my gosh, this is embarrassing because he's a former student and a great filmmaker. Um, what's the uh, franchise where the kids, um, oh, I'm going up, I'll have oh. to think of the name. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll correct it in post. Okay, uh, yeah, it's, uh, um, but uh, Wes was talking about, let me just pull it up. Uh, Wes was talking about this problem, you know, like I wanna, I wanna be able to work uh, I want to make films in a way where I'm creating the world and the characters and like he did in Maze Runner, the films that yep. I'm talking about. And right. while I'm making this film, I also want to have the worlds and the characters that um, that work really well in, in a game. Or, you know, I want uh, the, the girl who comes to see the, the you know, the 12 year old girl who comes to see this movie. I wanted to be able to go home and go to her room or go to a treehouse and interact with those same characters in those worlds. And that that storyteller in him who comes from that gaming world, who, by the way, is very visual filmmaker, 
but recognizes that we are not efficient as creatives and the technology is not efficient so that the creator, in this case, Wes, can create worlds and characters and storylines that can be used in all these different applications. Right. And so that's where this, and the term that everyone's using now, these virtual production techniques, hmm. you know, uh, are emerging, uh, where filmmakers can walk onto a stage uh, like the Mandalorian experience. And this is what was driving John and all of his work. I want to be able to go to a different place without moving, without going to a different place. Right. I want to have a 360 environment that can take me to another planet. What we're doing here uh, at Trilith on our stages with our virtual LED stages is, you know, if you need to jump into a car process shot and be going down New York Street's Fifth Avenue, we have a 360 environment where you're driving down Fifth Avenue. If, by the way, you need to cut and have two other characters driving down a Georgia dirt road, we got the Georgia dirt road. Whatever you need, right? Whatever that world you need, we can do quickly for you. And we can uh, make certain that you're focused on the creative choices that you're making because the technology solutions that we're providing allow you to take anyone anywhere at any time to tell any story you want. Now, it's interesting when you talk about the, the tech and there's also this other collision taking place as we speak, which is, you know, you, you now speak about Apple and Amazon as mm -hmm. a creative studio the same way you speak of, you know, Disney and Warner and so forth. Is, is, is that impacting anything around how uh, technology or, or competitive set is making it more efficient or are they just playing the role of a creator now? How, how is that changing dynamics in, 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 the, in, in this world? Well, it's, it's a great question because there are certain clashes in culture that are interesting to watch. Absolutely. I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah I remember, I think it was three or four years ago, a couple of friends of mine, we were in this debate and I was at the time arguing to pay attention that you know, money tends to go where it's treated best. And at the time, uh, you know, all the smart money was heading toward San Francisco and this whole other direct-to-consumer thing, and it was leaving Hollywood. And I remember telling my friends, you know, we got to pay attention to this, right? And this friend who will remain nameless, who, <laughs> by the way, now is an executive at Apple, uh, said to me, um, come on, Frank you know that what we do, the stories that we build, what we do and what we've done for decades is create magic. And what they do in San Francisco is manage data. And huh. I thought at the time, whoa, dude, and we had this debate, you know, we were right. uh, drinking wine and debating into the night. And I remember thinking, wow, thought leaders like this in the film industry are missing what's happening in terms of hmm. consumers getting access to these great stories. Now, just the opposite of that is, wouldn't it be neat if all this access, if these great stories, if we could do more of them and the access was ubiquitous, right? right. Which is the dream. But what's happening is you have this, these direct-to-consumer platforms that were created by certain kinds of money and certain kinds of culture coming into the creative culture. And there's been some very interesting clashes. But at the end of the day, it's good. It's the kind of clash that's for good. And I think that um, having platforms like Apple and Amazon um, uh, recognizing that they're that how to work with creatives. I mean, that's that's a that, that's a unique skill in and of itself. Right. So uh, and then also having creatives recognize the incredible power and the reach that can come, uh, you know, it's even more compelling reasons to tell great stories. Right. Yeah. And I'd imagine, too, the streaming, it seems to me that 
the impact of streaming too is giving so many more outlets and even more methods to create more creative output and what how can you even tell your story I, i'll tell you I, i've fallen in love with apple plus in terms of their, their, their i mean but it's yeah. it's a storytelling but i realize well maybe this will be a limited series maybe this will be a whatever but here we are a company that provides my iphone is now one of my favorite you know platforms right. to watch watch shows so imagine if you think about uh, Twilliff and what you're doing, it, it's, it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is trying to create the nimbleness to let creators kind of adapt to the stories they want to tell. That's it. And, and I tell you, as, you know, I grew up in the traditional you know, movie manufacturing distribution system. And the sort of linear process that that was, was important in terms of justifying the expense necessary to tell these great epic stories, right? There, it had to be done that way. Um, I'm excited about moving to this, as you say, this news. Uh, it's really a platform model. I tell you, let me pause for a second. It's yeah. so frustrating to hear this argument framed as, is my movie going to be in the theater or is it going to be in platforms? Huh. Because you're just a little too close to the fire to see the opportunity when you're asking that question, right? Because theaters aren't going anywhere. The right. platforms aren't going anywhere. Often, as you know, these technologies don't, get replaced, they become uh, incremental value. And so this is what's happening. And now I know we're in this weird time with COVID and I, we just happen to be on a time when uh, Regal just uh, right. shattered some of its its theaters. But the idea that we're going to give up gathering in a dark room with strangers and circling around a story, that's not changing. Now, the role it plays in creating value is, is really interesting. And now with these streaming platforms, and I, I want to separate tra platforms from streamers. So right. and, and not to get too didactic here, but uh, some businesses that we call streamers are linear businesses. They're creating product and they're delivering them to the consumer. Some of these streamers are actually platforms. And when I mean platforms, I mean like an Amazon, they connect cons uh, producers with consumers. Right. And there, there's a lot of different business opportunities and business lines with that. Now, they've gotten into the producer role to some extent to enable its relationships with the producers to connect with consumers because platforms like Amazon and Apple recognize that story is sticky, you know, right. and they, they got that. And so they are um, but first and foremost they're in the platform business they're in the business of connecting these producers with consumers unlike the linear business uh like uh like a netflix for example and so when i think about a creator walking into the apple ecosystem or a creator walking into the disney ecosystem maybe they come in through a platform maybe they come in through live entertainment maybe they come in through theater maybe they come in through experiential entertainment however they create their world their characters and their stories and at whatever entry point they make in the disney ecosystem you get to go wide long and 360 and right. it's exciting and certain and by the way going back to even people thinking the theaters are done despite what's happening now i think it's perhaps ownership or whatever will be impacted but but I think theaters and certain live experiences are going to come back even more expensive than ever. I agree. Uh, because people are going to be craving, craving it so much to, to experience that. So, I, I, you know, I think there's an element of experience um, that, that, that comes into, into all this. What, what's, what's kind of the end game that you want to be able to provide, you know, creators or platforms or te technologists in terms of kind of the environment you're creating? At the end of the day, 
we are creating a I'm just trying to think about the best way to approach it because I, if you look at it from a real estate sort of development point of view, right? This is yeah. a perp, a 935 acre, soon to be much more, by the way, master wow. development for the creative industries, right? I mean, we're building um, uh, a. It's located in South Metro Atlanta. You know, has businesses and homes and facilities and lifestyle resources and this beautiful, you know, European inspired town. Uh, with which, what I love about what we've done, and this is sort of a dream for me, is to we, we've created, uh, we've imagined places to live that accommodate sort of the the price sensitivities of all creatives in all stages of their careers, right. from these little micro homes and treehouse homes that we call canopy homes to town homes and apartments to single home families to estate homes, right? Right. Uh, and so, you know, uh, when I first got in the film industry and was running an apartment in, in, in Hollywood for $400 a month in a very dangerous place, by the way, because hmm. Hollywood used to be a tough place. And I, uh, you know, um, was just scrapping to get by. And as Dan likes to say, young creatives who basically get hand-me-downs, why can't they be in a place where an ecosystem where they belong, where they can right. afford to belong, and where they have all the creative tools they need to pique their imaginations, where they feel like anything's possible. So I know I'm sounding lofty, but this is literally what we dream about. Like, right. could we create a place where a creative comes in and says, wow, anything's possible. And listen, I love Joe and Anthony Russo. They're awesome, right? They're great storytellers. And of course, they, they can have all access to all this because of the budgets they're working with. But I want the next generation of filmmakers to feel the same way right. in this place. And so, you know, my daughter is a DGA uh, AD uh, who lives in Los Angeles, lives in Silver Lake, you know, in her early 30s. And like a lot of people her age, you know, scrapping to get by. Right. Uh, she has a great gig. She's, you know, how fortunate to belong to the union and work on great shows. But even at that level, it's hard to get by. And so being able to be 20 minutes from the most traveled airport in a creative ecosystem where anything's possible for creatives who are in all stages of their careers is the big dream. And it seems to me too, and, and even everything from where you're located to all of the above, I, I think it's very easy for someone to assume that filmmaking is the most innovative in terms of its business model, but there's a lot of, it's, it's sometimes resistant to innovation. Yes, very much so. So how do you how do you work through that as a leader in this industry of trying to drive change in an industry that is really difficult to change? Man, I'm so glad you say that because most folks believe sort of think of the industry filmmaking as an innovative industry and yeah. we are slow to change and that has been a real the reason I you know sort of took a break from the film industry and you know, which I've done a few times and went into the digital human business was because, you know, smart money was going somewhere else because Hollywood was so slow to change. Yeah. Um, but the flip side of that is this is a manufacturing machine that has to reliably deliver. And so the problem is when you're working on a $500 million budget, right. what matters is the story, right? What matters is this world. And the kinds of technologies, workflows, and solutions that will reliably get you there are the ones that matter. And so it's frustrating for 
technologists like me and innovators like, let me show you this cool way. I mean, <laughs> and what's interesting is COVID, you know, these virtual production technologies, for example, our virtual LED stage that we have now, um, boy, folks are slow to come to that. Even though I know as a filmmaker, I'm saying, oh my gosh, she's going to liberate you. You're going to have unbelievable. And they're thinking to my, themselves, okay, uh, I don't really know this. It's going to slow me down. It's probably going to cost a lot of money. And I'm saying, don't worry. It's easy to learn. It's going to cost you less money. It's going to give you, you know, right. COVID caused people to sort of take a look at it because we realized people do want to work in safe environments and enclosed environments. And we were able to uh, um, create uh, some real value with some innovation there. But you're right. Broadly speaking, the innovation is not in the manufacturing of content, but I would argue the innovation is in um, uh, uh, new and more exciting ways to tell stories that reach, you know, uh, that from uh, storytellers from all kinds of perspectives, yeah. reaching globally all kinds of communities and all kinds of people in a way that it just never could before. And what, in order to do that, um, the, 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 the technologies that will enable those kinds of um, uh, solutions to scale while at the same time getting into these uh, specific lanes of opportunity for story um, are the result of innovation that it's not gonna be real high profile, it's not gonna be real much talked about, but uh, it's going to uh, be successful in getting story to people. Because right. at the end of the day, it's not about innovating tech. It's about getting these rich stories to people. And there's a lot of insulary uh, industries that I think there's some exciting stuff going on. Uh, the, the gamification of, of the movie business and the interactivity of uh, character stories and world is creating some interesting stuff in the experiential entertainment space. None of it's working yet in really cool ways, you know. Uh, but I think there's going to be um, an opportunity for us to to discover and uh, as consumers, uh, new and exciting ways of exploring story, characters, and world in settings that we just never thought were possible from our living room and our home right. uh, to location-based entertainment to virtual characters, as I mentioned earlier, in a treehouse to, you know, <laughs> there's just a lot of opportunity there that I think will come from innovation. Now, how do you say, because uh, you're in this world of, uh, of course, actually you're in this collision of the world of magic and, cre and creativity and also, you know, the logistics and pragmatic of getting it delivered. So how do you stay creatively inspired? I, and I guess more specifically, do you still, you still play on the piano? You still? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I, <laughs> I do. Um, I, it's funny, I, I, it dawned on me at some point and, you know, these these constant dichotomies that we all struggle with. And when you're young, you know, and, uh, and, you're, and you're going to college and you're coming out and you see all these dichotomies in the world between hunger and wealth, between, you know, innovation and, and, and static frustration. And, and you know, I, in, in reflection, when I was younger, I was always just trying to solve problems. I mean, it's just right. frustrating. I was trying to reconcile those dichotomies. And at some point I came to realize that, and I'm not saying I'm wise, but I think what happens is wisdom actually ends up being the ability to transcend these dichotomies in life and see possibilities for integrating useful outcomes for the, for the larger good. Right. And at some point I realized I need to be at a level where I can control hmm elements of those dichotomies so I can get people to rise above it to see the useful outcome. 
And that was really exciting for me. But I realized I'm having to do this by kind of starting my own businesses, which means I've got to go get the money. But I know if I can get the money and I can start the business, I can connect the pieces. Right. And so in a way, landing where I am now, where we have nearly 50 businesses in our ecosystem and we've invested in some businesses and these collaborations are working together and we're actually programming the business outcomes so that they collaborate well with one another is me being able to sort of rise above the dichotomies hmm. and create some reconciliations. There are some very cool outcomes that I'm excited about. So that is a creative exercise for me yep. that that literally I, I, I dream about at night. I'm like, oh, my gosh, if we could get this group with this group, you will not believe what will come from it. And then, of course, every night I play the piano for a couple of hours. Well, that's really so good. Every night, the night you record it, and uh, you know you can you can put it on Zoom now if you want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's just for me. My wife tolerates how much I play, but she, uh, I, I, it really is a way to just escape. Uh, and um... well, well, on that note, though, here uh, uh, as we have close to our time here, uh, a few quick questions. We'll kind of make this rapid response here to kind of get Uh-oh. talk a little bit about how you. Uh, how you keep inspired, how you keep playing the, uh, every uh, every night with the piano, but a few other things here. So, what's what is your uh, what's your favorite food or and or restaurant? And 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 nowadays it's probably it might be something that gets delivered, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, I love this food, this restaurant uh, that I discovered in a warehouse, and probably I'm probably the last person to discover it. <laughs> but uh, it's here in Atlanta, so I discovered this restaurant. It's called Lazy Betty. Lazy Betty, yes. And basically, it's 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 um, it's on DeKalb Avenue. It's in a little warehouse, and the chef just puts together, um, you know, uh, a seven or a nine course meal. Oh, Sommelier wow. does this um, amazing, amazing process of pairing these wines with this food, and I never know what I'm going to get. And I just sort of walk in. Of course, you don't order; you just sit down and eat. Right. And they're so uh, thoughtful about how um, they prepare it. And, and that kind of consideration, that kind of creative approach to, to, to producing a human experience yeah. is what I love about great restaurants. And uh, Lazy Betty does a really good job of, of, of creating that experience. Well, yeah, yeah but I, say, I love that because it's, it's, it's more than a meal. It's an experience at that yeah, point. Exactly. That you get so that's fantastic. All right. So speaking of experiences, favorite getaway whenever you're able to actually get away. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, um, I love the hill country in Texas. I don't get there as much as I should. Um, I um, We have uh, spent time almost every summer now for 15 years up in um, uh, up, up near Kennebunk in Maine. And uh, during the uh, summer, it's a great getaway. And it's just a – I think the common theme here is I love to be, a, you know, in nature. I love to walk. I love to hike. We hike. My wife and I hike all the time. And so – uh, and, and she she's a real hiker. She did a 30-day, 385-mile hike a few months ago. So she's a real hiker, uh, you know. But, but I, I'm uh, you know I'm I'm I follow along, and it just feeds my soul. Um, we've been spending a lot of time up in Boone, North Carolina, right now. So it's just a great place to get away. Oh, the, t- the weather is perfect too. Now, uh, what is what is your pet peeve or the thing that drives you crazy? Mm, boy. <laughs> That's such a good question. Um, to be honest with you, the thing that drives me, I, it's, it's, it's the stress level that I deal with every day, which is things don't move fast enough. Mm. And, and, yeah. and, 
And I just feel like I I see solutions. I feel like if we could just do A, yeah. B, and C, we'd be done. We don't have to, but it's it's just the feeling that we're not focused and moving fast enough. And there's probably something wrong with me for that. But no, that's uh, kind of makes kind of goes with this uh, kind of innovators DNA. You know, <laughs> keep pushing forward. So, what habit drives your coworkers or your family crazy? What habit of yours or thing that you do drives those around you crazy? Uh, telling um, uh, the same story over and over again. <laughs> Are you, are you doing it purposely or do you just lose track? No, literally. And, I, and my wife says, you tell it as though it's just as interesting the first time you told it. Well, that's great. That's for you a storyteller, you know, you got to believe, you know. Um, all right. So uh, without getting yourself in trouble, favorite movie or show? And oh. I, I know you have, <laughs> hopefully you're not violating any contract with you. Yeah, any exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's hard. Uh, well, it's a bit like, I mean, the reason that's hard is because, uh, you know, as a musician, I, I performed a lot live. Yeah. And it's like saying your favorite venue, but it so depends on what happened in that moment and what was going on in your life and sort of how the music came out at that moment. And so what happens is with movies, you, you, you know, uh, I remember, you know, like, uh, I remember the first time I saw Sling Blade. Like, mm. I, there was a lot of stuff going on in my life. I watched it. I was an utter, I cried. I was a mess. I sat in a theater and watched it three times in a row. Mm. Now, it's a, it's a good movie, right? It's very interesting. And at the time, Billy Bob Thornton, what he was doing was it. It's not that remarkable, right? So my <laughs> point is that it's a, it was a really good movie for me. And it will always be a favorite movie. But it had to do with the context of where I was in my life, what I was doing, and probably yeah. what was going on in that moment in that theater and the audience. And that's why it's hard to pick a favorite movie because it's so circumstantial. And the experience of going into a world for the first time that a filmmaker creates and living it and bringing your humanity at that particular time in your life into it is very different than, you know, um, watching, you know, a repeat of a great action film, for example. So I love to dive into the Marvel universe and, yeah. and see their take on the meta narratives. I mean, I disappear into those movies and, 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 and they're some of the best storytelling in our time, which is a different kind of experience than, for example, a sling blade. Yeah. Uh, which, which, uh, and so anyway, I'm sorry. No, that's a, no, a no, long winded way of saying not how I can't answer your question. No, no, perfect. <laughs> Which is great. And I would imagine it would be, I'd be disappointed almost if you gave me one straight answer. But you bring up an interesting point, though, because, I mean, there's so many movies now I could say, I, I, I couldn't actually answer that. I almost speak to, I love the Apple stories right now, because everything I watch is great or something. But but it just, you made me click. It's like, I remember watching E.T., which of course is a great movie. Yes. But I was like 12 or whatever at the time. And what I was going on in my life, it was such an escape. I think I watched it a dozen times sneaking into the movie theater over and over, because it was an escape for me that summer. So it has a different context than just the actual beautiful storytelling that it told. And what's so great is watching someone tell you how wonderful a movie is and what it is and then getting them to drag you or watching people drag others to watch a movie. Yeah. And the sort of anthropologist in you recognizes that they're not going to be able to repeat that experience. They can show them the movie. Yeah. But the human experience of sitting in front of that movie at that time in their lives and the impact that it have is not the same thing as when they try to drag others to it. 
Right. Uh, so it's anyway. It's now, now is it is is it in terms of a favorite musician? Is it? Oh well. Similar? Oh my gosh, it's <laughs> that's so hard. Well, it is similar because um, I grew up uh, in Texas in the Texas music scene. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of great, uh, writers in that space. Uh, currently my, my favorite writer in the Texas music scene is Walt Wilkins and he just is, is a poet and, and a troubadour and just a, a great musician. Um, I also grew up, uh, uh watching, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan move from, you know, little venues and, you know, beat up six street bars to uh, you know, becoming the musician he was and had, had a chance to meet him uh, several occasions and was devastated, of course, uh, when he lost his life in that helicopter accident. But you know, as a musician, I saw him perform one night um, um, and he went to this transcendent place hmm. uh, that musicians like him can, uh, like a Miles Davis can. You don't know why it happens, but right. he happened to go into this place when he was soloing one night and he closed his eyes, his eyes rolled back in his head, he tilted his head up and he played for four or five minutes in a way that I know was not human. He was so connected to what was happening into that room. He was so connected to that music at that moment that I saw a performance that probably most, hmm. you know, will never see again. So anyway, so when musicians have the ability to do that, like a Miles Davis or or, or Stevie Ray, or, 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 you know, the, you know, these, these are, it's just that experience. Yeah. Again, that, really that moment experience. That they yeah. So you, 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 you've obviously got to inter- you get to interact or see, or be close to some of the amazing creators, actors, you know, of course, mm-hmm. you know, you're right now a few feet away from Wakanda, uh, which of course breaks my heart even saying it with, uh, with the, you know, obviously with Chadwick Boseman's passing this, this year. But, um, but if you think about it, um, have, have, has there ever been kind of a almost embarrassing starstruck moment you've had, despite all your interaction with, with, with you know, with, with all these incredible movies? Do you still find yourself starstruck or do you have a moment where you're like, wow, I almost was too embarrassingly starstruck? Okay, so this is going to be revealing. I, I, so I don't get starstruck and I don't know why. I, for yeah. some reason, I, 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 I've been around you know, uh, the most famous people in the world. Yep. Uh, and I, I, for some reason I get, I, I'm fascinated. So I will listen. Um, I'm very comfortable talking to celebrities. I don't know why I just, and, never, which probably helps in the business right. you're in too. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I don't think that was causal. I think just for some reason, I, 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 I with one exception, Uh-oh. and it's because I guess it's because I grew up in Houston and oh, I, uh, well, you eliminated me. So I thought you were going to, yeah, me, yeah, it's you. That's right. <laughs> So quick story to tell you how, how to give you an indication of how I was in uh, my office one day, uh, front desk rang through and said, hey, there's a Dr. Edgar Mitchell here to see you. And I'm like, Edgar Mitchell, you mean the Edgar Mitchell? And she's like, I don't know who you're talking about, but uh, uh, the president of the university asked you to meet him. I'm like, no, it's, it's the Edgar Mitchell. And I started sweating. And, I, and, <laughs> and so... And so where I do get starstruck is around astronauts. And, oh, and I wow. know all the names of the people that walked on the moon. I watched the moon landing in 1968. I, 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 I grew up in Houston. Yeah. And so Dr. Mitchell comes in, and it's the Edgar Mitchell. Here's one of the men that walked on the moon. And I can't speak. I know how to speak 
I'm a fairly articulate person. And he <laughs> wanted to talk to me about his son's interest in filmmaking. So he was coming as any person would to try to figure out how to help his kid. But boy, I cannot speak around astronauts. Super, for some reason, I just, the, the risk taking and the passion and the, the innovation, I don't know. Uh, that's that's well, where I get know, starstruck. It makes sense. You're talking about the ultimate celebrity of celebrities. You saw it this year, this year with uh, the SpaceX launch with, uh, with you, you know, with, yeah. So that, that's, that, that's, just I love totally that stuff. That. Love that yeah. stuff. Well, uh, so Frank, as we wrap up here, um, you, you're in a place where you get to create magic and inspire. And by the way, we could have gone about 20 different directions and gone <laughs> deep just on just streaming, you know, so um, or, or in so many platforms. But, you know, as an educator and, and, and what you do also in the creative space and with filmmakers, what would you tell? And, and you probably have talked to so many about this before, but when you have this aspiring filmmaker or entrepreneur or musician, Who's at the beginning of their journey and have so many hurdles in front of them that could seem Herculean. What's that advice you give that person to just keep driving forward? I, I think they would be surprised at how much the people that they think are running the industries that they're talking about are actually watching them. Meaning in our space, we're looking for young, bright people. We're looking for the next writers. We're looking for the next filmmakers. People are looking for the next musicians. And always these people emerge as youngsters, right? And so um, it's a lot more friendly than you think. And you actually have an asymmetric advantage in your youth. Hmm. And so as long as you're authentically pursuing something, that really you're not trying to be something i see a lot of young people being a filmmaker and it's like they're it goes something like this meaning here's what it is to be a filmmaker i'm a musician right. and being a mu musician goes like this well just stop uh, as long as you are authentic about what you love uh, and um, are willing to put in all the work uh, you know uh, um, the old you know Right. hours of time it takes to to be to be good at what you do. Um, I always say to my young filmmakers, remember what you're asking. You're asking people to to drive to a theater. And this is on these big movies. And and even if it's you're sitting at home to sit in the dark and listen to you for two hours. Now, what could you possibly say that would cause people to stop their lives and listen to you for two hours? Whatever it is, it's got to be authentic. But promise me, it takes. Promise you, it takes a lot of practice to be good at that. So, if you're willing to commit the time to be good at your and be comfortable with the fact that you're being, don't worry, people will pay attention. Just keep working at it, and you will rise um, uh, and, and build a career out of it. Well, uh, Frank, you use one of my favorite words on Disruptor Studio, which is about being authentic, which is, I think is the key to mm -hmm. driving change, transformation, and which you are that for sure as well, too. <laughs> so I thank you Thanks, Alex. Uh, for your time here in the Disruptor Studio. I'm sure we'll find some time, maybe we'll find an excuse to film, you know, over there at Trilith, you know. That'd be and, awesome. And, uh, yeah. That'd be pretty cool. So I'm looking forward. Good luck on here on the, on the journey there. And thanks for being here. We'll talk to you again soon. Cool, Alex. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate the discussion. Thanks. That was Frank Patterson here on the Disruptor Studio, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I could have just gone on for hours and hours and hours with Frank, and we end up usually getting ourselves in trouble whenever we talk as we just end up exceeding our time, and 
kind of going off topic and so it was fun to speak to him here in the Disruptor Studio about so many things that there's so much more that we could go on and talk about with Frank. Make sure you follow Frank and, and see what's going on with Trilla Studios. It's going to be exciting in terms of this collision of creative and, and tech and storytelling that's going to re- be really shaping how movies and stories are told for generations to come. So make sure you listen to more stories as well, too, every couple of weeks here on the Disruptor Studio podcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We have much more to come, many more innovators, disruptors, and storytellers. I'm Alex Gonzalez, and we'll see you again soon.